Hello, and welcome to Meditations from Middle Earth. My name is Strider, and I'm a Christian worker here in where I call Middle Earth. We love to meditate on God's Word, and He's given us so many unique and rich experiences here in Middle Earth, and I'd like to share those insights with you here on Meditations from Middle Earth. Today, I wanted to bring us to two conclusions. One, uh, the conclusion of the celebration of the disciplines. I've been walking through the classical disciplines as described by Richard Foster in his very excellent book, Celebration of Discipline. And today, we want to talk about the discipline of celebration. And I also want us to walk us to the conclusion on... My Matthew 5, 4, 3 teaching, uh, as we meditate and, uh, and move to uh, contemplative meditation uh, on uh, these uh, verses found in Matthew first 5 in the Beatitudes, then in 4 in the temptation of Jesus, and then finally in chapter 3 on the coming of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. And as we've meditated on these things, there's a couple of things I want to draw our attention to. So this might be a little bit longer than the others, although I'm going to try to keep it to a half an hour. Uh, but we will see what I can do with that because there's just so much I want to share. Um, so with the disciplines... Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is this idea of the celebration of discipline. It's this celebrating. This was the name of Richard's book back in 1978. I read it in 1982. Uh, it's been really impactful. You'll know anybody listening to this would notice that uh, I'm not just re- reciting what was in Richard's Foster's excellent book. Um, but that book was a springboard for me to begin to explore the disciplines. It's taken my entire life, my adult life, from 82 when I was 20 years old uh, until today. Uh, I am still at nearly 60. Uh, I, am, I am still trying to discover the truth behind these disciplines, trying to get to an attitude of uh, mystical union with our Father, through Jesus Christ. I'm still trying to find what it means to be a true follower of Jesus, to teach his truth, to love others the way he loves us, and to intercede on behalf of a a lost and dying world that's so bent on its own self-destruction, and to call out to God on behalf of this hurting world, and to say to God, Lord, have mercy and to see people and communities changed. So this is, this is kind of the groundwork where I start. I'm, I'm, I'm here in this dark and dying world and, and just surrounded by people just seem, seemingly determined to harm each other. And here I come to the last discipline, the discipline of celebration. So what does it mean to be able to celebrate? And I think... The first thing I have to say about that is that it's it's such a necessary discipline. 
And you think, well, why is celebration a discipline? Surely you're, you're having a party, uh, you're, you're having fun and laughing and having joy, and that's, that's aside from the discipline. That's taking a break from the discipline of your spiritual life. And uh, that's a, wow, that's such a, a brutal misconception. I think it's such a lie of the enemy. Uh, all of these disciplines should lead us to joy. I, I always come back to the idea of a musician. You know, I, I played the trumpet when I was younger, and now I attempt to play the guitar. And uh, I don't have the discipline really to do what I want to do with those instruments, you know. I, I, I hear the music in my head, and I can't produce it. And largely because I haven't really spent the time committed to that, uh, to committed to the discipline of, of mastering those instruments so that when I have a musical thought, I can just create that with the instrument that's in my hand. It takes discipline to do that. And when you see somebody who's really worked hard at their craft, if it's an artist creating art of a painting, sculpture, or dance, or music, and you see a musician who's so talented, it's not just that they're talented. 90% of their talent is the discipline they had to learn their craft. And with all that discipline, they can stand on a stage and produce music that just is so joyful, you know? Uh, if it's a sad song or a joyful song, it doesn't matter. There's just joy expressed there in the freedom of being able to uh, do that. And, and, and so when it comes to the spiritual life, we also then need the discipline. How can we have, uh, how can we experience joy? How can we love others well in the midst of this really unloving world? How can we shine a light of truth and joy and hope in the midst of a world that's so hopeless. And this isn't an easy thing to do. There's lots of opposition to this. And we're not just going to do it naturally. We're not just going to wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be a joyful, thankful person and just bring joy into a room. No, you won't do that just by deciding to do it. You'll do it by deciding to do it and then practicing that. You have to practice gratitude to become a grateful person. You have to practice prayer to become a prayerful person. You have to practice meditation to become a thoughtful person. And uh, all of these I strive for, and after so many years, still fall so far short um, of where I want to be. And yet, for all that, one of the things that all of these disciplines can lead to is the concept of celebration, that we can also celebrate in the world, celebrate the goodness of God. And so as we, as we look at our discipline of celebration here, um, we think of, you know, the, <laughs> the Westminster Catechism gets quoted a lot. Uh, the chief end and duty of man is to love God and to enjoy him forever. I think they absolutely knew what they were doing when they put the chief end and duty of man. And you could just, you know, fill in the blank afterwards as, and you just have this, uh, this vision of, of men 
uh, or gathered around a table and writing this out in some stodgy, dark place. And the chief end of duty of man is to just, you know, meditate a lot or just read the Bible a lot or just, you know, with serious face. And no, that's not what they say. They go on to say to love God and enjoy him forever. God is to be loved and enjoyed even as he loves and enjoys us. And we find that so hard to believe. And yet, uh, I think that's exactly what we see. We see a self, love is self-giving. And we see a God who is utterly love and utterly self-giving, sustaining us in our brokenness day after day after day after day. He's, we, are, we are in a dark and broken world, and still he sustains us every day. And he doesn't do that just because he enjoys watching us suffer. He does that because he enjoys us. He enjoys and loves us forever. And therefore, we should reciprocate and enjoy God, love him forever. So... What else can we say about this discipline of celebration? It brings a freedom from anxiety and care forms the basis for our celebration. What does that mean? The freedom from anxiety. As we uh, experience joy and laughter and we celebrate the goodness of God in our lives, there's, there's, just, there's never a bad excuse for a party. I just love a party. I, I think of myself often as, uh, what's that guy's name? Fizzywig, who is the character, the boss in uh, Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. And Ebenezer Scrooge, as a young man, had this boss who absolutely loved the Christmas party, you know. And that, that was me. That, that's who I want to be, this guy who wants to... Be, always be ready for a party. Always be ready to play a game. Always be ready to throw down some music and sing some praise choruses and just have a good time. Uh, karaoke night is um, one of our favorite nights around our house. And we just love to sing and to enjoy each other and to enjoy the goodness of God and his creation together. And these freedoms to enjoy and to to throw up a light in the face of all the darkness that's around us is something that has kept us going on the field through years and years of difficulty. So this discipline of celebration, it doesn't happen naturally. Um, as we look around, we know that we can get caught up in the misery and the struggle and the trial that others that we love they're around us everywhere, and they're, they're experiencing difficulty. But instead, of, and while we do weep with those who weep, we also rejoice with those who rejoice. And there's joy in the fruit of the Spirit. You know, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we live life with the Spirit, there is joy. But it's only through obedience that this produces this joy. We can't manufacture joy. You know, you can, ma you can manufacture a high. You know, you can throw a party and you can just get everybody dancing and hyped up. So you can manufacture a high. I will not forget 
a moment in my that was very formative uh, in my younger years. I went to a concert, the Christian rock band, and um, man, I got I, I I went ready to have a good time. I was probably 20, 21 years old, and I was ready to have a really good time. And I was standing up on my chair there in the audience and singing out, God gave rock and roll to you, put it in the soul of everyone, singing along with the band and just getting really hyped up. And the next morning I got up and I thought, God gave rock and roll to you, put it in the, well, no, he didn't. Um, I mean, I like rock and roll, but put in, put in the soul of everyone. No. And it's not true. And I, and I realized that I had hyped myself up around things that weren't true and it wasn't a real joy and it wasn't a real, uh, you know, the feeling was just all predicated on something that wasn't true. And I, and I felt very betrayed I betrayed myself by allowing myself, really encouraging myself to give myself over um, to this good feeling. And, and I felt betrayed by uh, the band and the people who, had, who were around me who encouraged me to go down this road of celebrating that which wasn't true. It's only obedience to the truth of God and his love that brings us to a truth that won't betray us. Because when you think about the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing, that's what it was all about, was trying to celebrate life. But it was all based on a lie, and it all led to guilt and bitterness and broken relationships. And it's only when we can celebrate life in a, it, based on the truth of God's Word so that you know the 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 good things in this world can be celebrated, and I'm not against rock and roll, uh, <laughs> but it, the uh, the 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 basis of our celebration is because God loves us, and we find joy in that. And then all the ways that we can express that joy are all valid as long as it's an obedience to the love that He's given us. And so obedience to God produces joy. Everything else, when we try to manufacture our own joy, it always just leads to, to guilt and, and recrimination, and which leads to bitterness. And, and there's no joy at the end of that road. So we need to praise God, even in our trials. We're praising God. We're celebrating. We don't celebrate nothing. We celebrate God really at work in our lives. And even when days are difficult, we know that he's still there and he's walking with us through the difficult trials. And he's not responsible for the trials, but he's with us in the trials. And he doesn't rescue us out of every trial. He doesn't protect us from every harm and every difficult thing. But he, but he walks with us through all of those things. And that can be celebrated. And Philippians 4 most famously talks about this issue and of, of just rejoicing in the Lord. You know, and again, I say rejoice. And it talks about you know, focusing on uh, things that are true and lovely and good because there is good in this world and it should be celebrated. All right.
So there's much more to say about celebration. Um, I guess I'm going to give you this final quote from Soren Kierkegaard. He says, laughter begets laughter. Humor is a concealed pair. And what does that mean? It means that as we have joy and laughter, it brings more laughter and more joy. And so we should be joyful, thankful, grateful people. And in that, that will that seed sown in the world will reproduce and produce more joy and more laughter. And if there's anything this sin-sick world needs is more joy and more laughter. So let's be those people who bring celebration to the table and aren't the kind of people who say, oh, let's not have another party. Let's not play another game. The world's too broken. The world's too difficult. We need to stay serious and stay focused. No, I can't find any reason to celebrate. No. We, with the discipline of celebration, we determine that it is right and good to laugh, to have joy, to get together with one another, to build one another up, to remind one another that God is love. He loves us and he wants to be with us. And we can laugh and praise and enjoy him forever. So that's the celebration of discipline. So much more to say about that. But we're going to move on because I don't want this to go more than half an hour, and I'm so bent on getting there. Uh, Here we are at 17 minutes. Now, as we turn to our time of meditation and we think about Guido's Ladder again, and I've been trying to lead us through this, this discipline of contemplation and how Guido saw the ladder and he saw that you know the, the first rung was the word. And he would read the word. And then that would move him to prayer. And then that would move him to meditation. And then that would move him to contemplation. And so there's the rungs of the ladder going up. And we've been doing these rungs. So the word that I have been leading us through and meditating on and contemplating about has been the Matthew 5, 4, 3. And why have I chosen those passages? Because to me, they're a set. Now, I took them in reverse order just so that I could save the Son of God for last, uh, which is where we're going to contemplate about, to meditate on today. But uh, it's the character and nature of the kingdom in the Beatitudes. This, this set of instruction from Jesus that as we uh, meditate on it, it leads us to understand that we begin with, we, as we are those who are poor in spirit, we're humble. We know that we don't know. And that leads us down a path of being meek and uh, loving compassion and uh, weeping with those who weep and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and all the way down to becoming peacemakers, which is who God is, is the peacemaker. He's the one who brings peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And we are called to follow him and become like that. And so the Beatitudes are a way of thinking, a way of, of, of orientating ourselves to the world. And then in contrast to that, there's the world. And what's the way of the world? Well, that's found in the temptations that Jesus faced. The devil coming to Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 and saying, oh, you want a kingdom? I can give you a kingdom. 
You want to you wanna rule the world? I can help you rule the world. We can do that through the power of, of force, through the power of power. We can accomplish this politically. We can accomplish this through force. We can account, you can just wow people with your miracles, jump off this temple. You can wow people with your power, just turn the stones into bread. You can, you can have what you want. Just bow down and worship me because I'm the one who's all about power and force and manipulation. I'm the one who's about deception. I'm the one who's, here's the devil talking to, him, to Jesus and saying, here I am. I can get you everything you want and you don't have to go to the cross. And Jesus rejecting that and saying, no, I will not take by force what is mine. I will lay my life down. I will sacrifice. I will give. I am self-giving because love is self-giving. And I will lay my life down. And in humility and in love, I will achieve the kingdom of God. And we're still walking that road with him today. And so this is the contrast of chapter 4, where the devil says, hey, you could have it this way, and chapter 5, where he says, no, that's not what we're doing. We're doing it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're, blessed are those uh, who are pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so this is a different path that he's laid down. And then I've backed us up to chapter 3, where we have the baptism of Jesus. Who is it that is asking us to do these things? Who is it that is rejecting the way of the world? And who is it that is offering us a different way, a, a way that looks quite difficult, honestly. Who has the right to do that? And as I read down through here in Matthew chapter 3, here we have the baptism of John, a, a, a baptism by John of Jesus. Jesus, in, in verse 15, he says, uh, well, John, I'll back it up all the way to verse 14. Uh, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved with whom I'm well pleased. I'd like to meditate on this verse 17. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. One of the things that struck me immediately is that there's an argument out there in the secular world, and certainly where I live, among a Muslim people, uh, that says, you know, Jesus was not the Son of God. And and they'll even make this, the claim that in the Gospels, you know, Jesus always refers to himself as the Son of Man. He takes the more humble position there and refers to him as Son of Man. Now, there's a, a case to be made where Son of Man is referring back to the book of Daniel, where the Son of Man clearly refers to God. But apart from those apologetics, Jesus rarely refers to himself as God. There's the... 
John chapter 8 section where he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And using the I am, they took up stones to stone him because they realized he was saying that he was God. But again, this is a bit cryptic. He's not coming out very directly here. But I would, as I look at these verses here, Jesus doesn't need to say who he is. He doesn't need to defend himself. Proverbs says we shouldn't defend ourselves, you know. We should let others defend us. And here's Jesus. He, he doesn't promote himself. The Father promotes him. It's not what Jesus says about himself. The Father, a voice from heaven, said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So the voice from heaven, Almighty God, is declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. And what an interesting thing that is. And, it, of course, it kind of breaks our brain, this whole concept of the Trinity. How is Jesus God and the Father is speaking above him? And then Jesus prays to God. How are these guys different and yet the same? And, and, and I, would, I would meditate and think on it this way. That God is eternal and he transcends the physical reality that he created. It's not just that God is bigger than the world. God is beginning bigger than the solar system. God is begin, bigger than the universe. God is beyond time, which he created. So all this time and substance in the universe that we are a part of, and we really can't get outside of to think what's outside of the universe, what's beyond the bounds of the universe. And scientists discuss that to this day, um, think, trying to think about how big is the universe and uh, what would be beyond it. And we don't know the answer to that because we can't get outside it to look at it. And yet God is outside it because God was there before it, and he'll be there after it. So he's beyond time. And now Jesus comes to us here in the form of a baby that grows to be a man. And certainly he is the Son of God. But we can't picture Jesus like the Greek gods, like when Zeus came down and had sex with some woman whose name I don't remember, and then Apollo is born, and he becomes this god because he's the son of Zeus. And that's, that's like, you know, it hurts your brain to think about all the immorality and the disgusting nature of the, the, of the, the, the Greco-Roman gods because they made God in their own image. And, and if we declare Jesus to be the Son of God, are we doing the same thing? Are we creating God in our own image here? And God says, no, this, this is my Son. You're not making that up. This isn't some weird mythology uh, where some writer decided to write about the foibles of, of humankind and, and put them on deities. No, this isn't... Uh, us making God in our image. This is God sending his son that is a, a piece of himself into the world. He's entering his creation. But even though he's entered his creation, he's still bigger than his creation, which is why you have the duality at this point. 
And then there's the Spirit of God, which roams around in his creation. But the Father God is still above all creation. And so that's why we have to think about God in three separate ways, because of the size and scope and the nature of God himself is bigger than our universe. And so as Jesus comes as the Son of God, he personifies God to us. And why is that important? I have this discussion a lot with people here as they say, look, God didn't have a son, first of all. But if he did have a son, he wouldn't have sent him to earth like this. And if he did send him to earth, he wouldn't have died on a cross. And there's this complete misunderstanding, sometimes willful, sometimes ignorant, of who Jesus came to be. Why did Jesus have to come and why did Jesus die? Jesus died on the cross to personify love itself to us. That love is always self-giving. And so as Jesus comes and personifies the will of God, because here's a man running around declaring who God is. You know, there's all the different religions of the world who say, oh, God is like this. And Jesus comes and says, no, that's not what God is like. God is like this. And then he goes to the cross for us, for our sins. Here we are sinners. And what does that even mean that we're sinners? It means that we're not what we were created to be. And we all feel the weight of that. And Jesus comes in and says, you are not who you are supposed to be. You are not uh, fulfilling the destiny that I've created you to be. You're in this lost and broken world, and I've come to fix it. And so he dies on the cross as a demonstration of the way of the cross. And this is the way that we are to uh, find life and happiness and joy and find our true selves is by giving up our rights, by laying down who we are. And this goes right back to uh, the Beatitudes. And blessed are the poor in spirit. And then... If this is the way, then how, what did he accomplish by getting there? He accomplished the sacrifice of himself, which is paying the price for our sins. And what does that mean that he paid the price for our sins? It's a declaration that inasmuch as you guys all feel that you need to pay a price, we all have this sense of justice about us. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we ate from. And we're the ones who declared to our, ourselves to be judges. And Jesus comes in and says, yeah, you know what? <laughs> Let me tell you how the Father really feels about you. I'm laying my life down. You want, you want somebody to pay for all these sins? I'll pay for them. I didn't commit any of them. And yet I'll be the sacrifice because I love you that much. And so here comes this, this very complicated idea of atonement where Jesus just declares, hey, you guys, look to me. Look to my cross. It's a way out of your darkness. Come do what I've done. Lay your, lay your rights down. You Lay yourself down and become, as I am, a resurrected, because he doesn't stay on the cross, but going through the cross, he's resurrected into a glorious body, that lives forever. And this is our glorious future. 
that we will become what he always created us to be from the beginning of time. Beings that he loves and has called us to love. And this is why Jesus is sent. And this is why God puts his mark on him here. He says, this is my beloved whom I am well pleased. Jesus is who God called him to be. It's, it's going back to the, the first Adam. When God created Adam, he said it was good. And then Adam made it not good. We chose the wrong path. We chose not to love. We chose to become our own judges. And the misery and brokenness of the world is a result of our choices. And God sends Jesus, and again he can declare, it is good. And then Jesus lives a life of goodness and blessing. And he dies a violent death. And as he brings this violent death to the, to the face of this hostility, as he faces hostility and anger and hatred with love and forgiveness and grace, he overcomes the world. And in his resurrection, he demonstrates that there is a way out of this dark place. I want to take us to contemplation on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us to this to this place where we too can go down a road that you have shown to us, a road that leads to death, and we will all die. But we do not fear it because we know that you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table in the presence of our enemies and we will live with you and enjoy the Lord forever and ever, dwelling in your house (laughs) that you've created for us. Heavenly Father, as I think on your Son, it gives me joy. The joy gives me the strength to go forward and live a life like he lived, a life of self-giving. I do it so imperfectly. Teach me even this day to become a son that you would say with with me you are well pleased. Amen. Now, let's take that to contemplation. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Open the door. Now let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. This has been Meditations from Middle Earth. May God be your ever-present teacher and richly bless you on your journey.